Let's take our Bibles to Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Following the Messiah's resurrection, Mary Magdalene and the women went and told the 11 disciples all that had occurred. The angel's appearance, the angelic message, the empty tomb, and the Messiah's appearance. They recounted how they had been filled with fear, but upon seeing their resurrected Savior, they were filled with great joy. Now, besides appearing to the women on the first day after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to Peter, then to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and finally to ten of the eleven disciples in the upper room. Over the next forty days, Jesus continued appearing to the apostles and other disciples. During his 40-day post-resurrection ministry, Jesus' focus was the same as before, making disciples. And now as his ascension to heaven draws near, Jesus gathers the eleven together and commissions them to continue what he started by making disciples. Therefore, Matthew closes his gospel record by focusing on the Messianic Commission. The Messianic Commission. The Messianic Commission recorded here in Matthew 28, 16-20 is outlined in four parts. First, its location, then its authority, then its goal, and finally, its promise. Now, Matthew first sets forth the location of the Messianic Commission in Matthew 28, 16-17. Verse 16, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Now recall, if you will, that before his death, Jesus promised the disciples that after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee, Matthew twenty-six thirty-two. Following the resurrection, the angel commanded the women to go and remind the disciples that Jesus would go ahead of them into Galilee, and there you will see him, Matthew 28, 7. Before reaching the disciples, Jesus met the women and commanded them again, saying, Go, take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Matthew twenty-eight ten. And now, here in Matthew twenty-eight sixteen, Matthew propels his narrative forward to fulfill Jesus' promise to meet the disciples in Galilee. He begins by stating that the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee. Now, of course, we, we need to understand this is not their first meeting. This is not the first time Jesus and the disciples have met. Remember, they had met him in Jerusalem. In the upper room, Jesus had ministered to them by soothing their fears and alleviating their doubts. And with their faith undergirded, the disciples obeyed and went to Galilee. Now, that the Messianic Commission is given in Galilee is significant. Galilee was known as Galilee of the Gentiles. In Matthew 4, 14-15, Matthew quotes Isaiah 9-1 to prove that the Messiah's ministry would be based in Galilee of the Gentiles. Quote, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Though the region of Galilee is Jewish and composed of the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, how did it become known as Galilee of the Gentiles? In order to understand this reference, it's necessary to go back to 1 Kings 9, 11. 1 Kings 9, verse 11. Let's begin reading verse 11. Hiram, king of Tyre, 
had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress timber and gold according to all his desire. Then King Solomon gave Hiram 20 cities of the land of Galilee. You see, in order to pay the debt he owed to King Hiram for helping to build the temple, Solomon gave 20 cities from Zebulun and Naphtali in Galilee to King Hiram. Now, before I move on, this needs to be said. God gave that land to the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. It was not Solomon's to give away. Solomon's decision to give away pieces of the promised land of Gentiles was just the tip of the iceberg, which resulted in the divided kingdom and ultimately ended with the entire promised land occupied by Gentiles. And so part of Galilee became known as Galilee of the Jews, and the other part as Galilee of the Gentiles. Now much of Jesus' ministry took place in Galilee, even in Galilee of the Gentiles. On one occasion, recorded in Mark 7, 24-30, Jesus went and ministered in the city of Tyre, same Tyre where King Hiram had been from. There he met a Gentile woman of Syrophoenician descent whose daughter was demon-possessed. This Gentile woman possessed genuine faith, however, and as a result, Jesus removed the demon from her child. Now, every time Jesus ministered to Gentiles during his earthly ministry, it was in anticipation of blessing the whole world with the gospel. Now, going back to Matthew 4.16, and referring to Galilee of the Gentiles, Matthew continued quoting Isaiah 9, this time verse 2. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Here, as prophesied by Isaiah, Jesus would come to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And even now, in his post-resurrection ministry, Jesus calls the disciples to Galilee and commands them to make disciples of all nations. That is, make Christ followers of all Jews and all Gentiles. In particular, the disciples were to convene at the mountain which Jesus had designated. While the text does not specify which mountain, there is an excellent likelihood that this was the very mountain upon which Jesus first taught them what discipleship meant, being a kingdom citizen. Recall that in Matthew 5, 1 and 2, that Jesus went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth, and he began to teach them. Imagine upon the same mountain where Jesus first taught his disciples, he now commissions them to make disciples. Upon reaching the mountain, the disciples worshipped him. The verb worshipped, proskuneo, means to reverence or do obeisance. Now, in the ancient Near East, worship or obeisance, reverence, involved kneeling down, placing one's forehead on the ground, and blowing kisses towards the object of worship. Now, friends, while the outward mode of worship looks different in our modern Western culture, the spirit of worship has not changed. It is still to be an act of reverence. It is still to be an act of obedience. And it must be motivated by humility and submission to the Lord. Does that describe your worship? 
Do you come to worship the Lord in humility and in submission? Do you come to do obeisance to him? Do you bow down yourself to him? Do you reverence him? Matthew goes on to record that while all the disciples outwardly worshiped Jesus, some were doubtful. Now the verb doubtful, distazo, means to be of two minds or waver between two positions. Perhaps they were wavering over how to behave or act in his glorified presence. Perhaps some of these disciples were wavering between faith and reason. On the one hand, by faith, they believed that Jesus rose from the dead. On the other hand, however, they were having difficulty reasoning how a dead man could be alive. Nonetheless, they all had enough faith to obey Jesus and come to Galilee. Matthew next sets forth the authority behind the Messianic Commission in Matthew 28, 18. The authority behind the Messianic Commission. Verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Again, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Authority, exousia, refers to power or dominion over persons and things. And Jesus' authority is limited by the term all. The limit of all implies that Jesus' power and dominion are indeed unlimited. He has power and dominion over everything and over everyone. Now, I want you to see here that this power and dominion has been given to him. The verb has been given, didomai, is a divine passive, implying that the Father has bestowed this authority upon the Son. Now, from all eternity, Jesus was God. Positionally, as the second person of the Godhead, Jesus was the Son. And as the Son, he willingly submits to the will of God the Father, the first person of the Godhead. However, regardless of position, the Son and the Father are equal in nature and essence. In other words, all that we can say of the Father can be said of the Son. For example, the Father is omnipotent or all-powerful. Therefore, Jesus is omnipotent or all-powerful. Why then would Jesus need to be divinely given power or dominion? Was there ever a time when Jesus did not have all power and all dominion over everyone and everything? Yes, there was. When Jesus became incarnate, when he took on human flesh, he set aside his power and dominion. Paul reveals in Philippians 2 verse 7 that Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now, what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? Well, to be clear, he did not empty himself of his deity. Jesus always was God and continued to be God even in human flesh. The term emptied, kanao, in Philippians 2 7 means to lay aside certain divine privileges. Now let's take a moment to think through those divine privileges that he set aside. First, Jesus willingly laid aside the outward manifestation of his glory. 
Before going to the cross, Jesus prayed in John 17, 7, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Second, Jesus willingly laid aside the use of his relative attributes, such as omnipotence. Of all the miracles Jesus performed, he did none of them in his own power. As he reveals in Matthew 12, 28, he performed all of his miracles by the Spirit of God. And third, Jesus willingly laid aside his authority. Jesus came not as a sovereign, but as a servant. As he says in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And so when the Father resurrected the Son, it signified that, Je- that Jesus the Messiah's substitutionary, sacrificial, redemptive work was complete. Those divine privileges he voluntarily set aside to complete that work were restored. No longer did Jesus need to veil his glory. He could freely now use his relative attributes such as his omnipotence or power. And furthermore, it is no longer needful for Jesus to be a servant. He is the messianic king, and as king, his authority is now fully restored. You know, it's interesting that at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, Satan promised to give Jesus authority over all the kingdoms of this world if Jesus would worship him. Now, of course, Jesus refused the temptation, but the means by which his power and authority would be restored was not through Satan, but through the substitutionary sacrificial death. As well, Satan only offered authority of the world's kingdoms. The Father has given Jesus all authority over all the heavens and the earth. Also note the scope of Jesus' power and dominion in heaven and on earth. There is no place within or without the created realm where Jesus does not have power and dominion. Because he has the authority, he not only has the right to command his disciples to make more disciples, but he has the right to enable and equip them to make disciples. My friends, without the Messiah's authority, the mission to make disciples would be doomed to failure. Matthew next sets forth the goals of the Messianic Commission. The goals of the Messianic Commission. Verse 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. This commission is known as the Great Commission due to its global impact. And it's made up of six action verbs. Go, make disciples, baptizing, teaching, to observe, and command it. The first verb, go, peruomai, a participle. The second verb, make disciples, mathetuo, an imperative. Baptizing, baptizo, a participle. Teaching, didasco, another participle. To observe, tereo, an infinitive. And command it, entelomai, an indicative verb. Of these six verbs, three provide the goals of the commission. Make disciples, baptize, and teach. Now, goal one of the Messianic Commission is to make disciples. Make disciples. Now, a disciple is one who attaches himself 
to a teacher, learns their doctrine, and conforms their conduct to the standard of their teacher. Now, a disciple of Christ is a Christ follower or Christian. Thus, a Christian is a disciple, and a disciple is a Christian. Acts 11.26 says, The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. See, my friend, there is no such thing as a Christian who is not a disciple. That is a genuine Christian who is not a disciple. Now, what does it mean to make disciples? The verb make disciples, Matthew 2.0, means to cause people to become Christ followers. How does a person become a Christ follower? The means of becoming a Christ follower is summed up in Mark 1.15. Repent and believe the gospel. Repenting is confessing and forsaking your sin and turning to God. See, my friends, in order to be a Christian, to be a disciple, you need to repent of your sin because sin has created discord between you and God. Because of your sin, you are damned to the lake of fire. However, God provided Jesus, his son, to be a savior for humanity. And Jesus is the savior because he died, he shed his blood to atone for sin. However, Jesus did not remain dead. God the Father accepted his sacrifice and raised him from the dead. And so when a person repents of their sin and believes that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, they're saved. That is, he or she becomes a Christ follower, a disciple. Now I want you to notice here that the object of the verb make disciple is of all the nations. Now the term nations, ethnos, refers to various people groups. Hence, we are called to make disciples of all the people. That disciples are to be made of all peoples implies that the gospel must be proclaimed to all cultures, to all societies, regardless of national boundaries. My friends, the commission is global in its scope. And because the term nations is in the accusative case, it indicates that the action of the verb makes disciples is causative. That is, it shows causation. You see, that means the verb make disciples does not mean we make them by force or duress, but we make disciples by convincing or urging them. A literal rendering of the verb make disciples would be convince all the peoples to become disciples or urge the people to become disciples. Again, note the command given in Matthew 28, 19. Make disciples. Disciples do not make themselves. It is incumbent upon every one of us who, are, who is a disciple to make other disciples. Friends, babies do not make themselves, and so too Christians do not make themselves. As Romans 10, 13 to 14 and 17 declares, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. You see, the point there is you cannot believe until you receive the gospel. However, you cannot receive the gospel until someone else preaches or reveals the gospel to you. Therefore, Jesus commands all disciples to make disciples as they go. You see, the verb go, peruomai, is a circumstantial participle and can be rendered as going or as one goes. The thrust of the verb implies that as you go about your daily routine, you are to be making disciples. 
In other words, you are to be sharing the gospel with others with whom you have contact. Now, too often, people read the verb go as a command and apply the Great Commission only to those who are called to serve as missionaries around the world. That is not the thrust of this verb. As believers go about their daily routine, that's you and me, every one of us can and should engage in making disciples. Now the verb go also conveys more than simply going about your daily routine. Dr. Luke uses this verb to describe your conduct of life. In Luke 1.6 he writes, They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Now here Luke uses the term poruomai to describe walking blamelessly, which means conducting your life according to the Lord's commands and requirements. In Acts 9.31, Luke records that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on, peruomai, conducting themselves in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Now, in that context, Luke implies that right conduct is going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Now, to Luke's point, the verb peruomai not only refers to going about your daily routine, but it involves right conduct. As you go about your daily routine, you are to conduct yourself in a godly fashion. Nobody wants to hear the gospel otherwise. You know, it's not merely enough to speak the truth. You've got to live the truth. You need to examine yourself. Does your life line up with what you believe about the gospel? You need to remember that old adage. More is caught than is taught. See, friends, making disciples is proclaiming the Messiah's message to repent and believe the gospel. The command to make disciples is for all believers, implying that all of us are to proclaim the gospel. We are to proclaim it by lip and by life as we go about our daily routine. Now, after somebody becomes a disciple, what happens next? Does making disciples stop once someone is converted? According to the Messianic Commission, two actions must follow conversion, baptizing and teaching them. You see, goal two of the Messianic Commission is to baptize disciples. We've got to make disciples, now we've got to baptize disciples. Jesus says that after making disciples, we are to go about baptizing them. Them refers to the people who have been made disciples. Baptizing, baptizo, instrumental participle indicating how discipleship occurs. In other words, following conversion, the necessary next step for a disciple is baptism. Now, what is baptism? The verb baptizo means to dip, plunge, or immerse. Thus, when someone is baptized, they are immersed in the water. Now, the act of baptism is an act of identification. It identifies that the disciple has repented and placed their faith in the gospel. It also identifies the disciple with the Messiah in his death, burial, and resurrection. Romans 6, 3-4. Do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too might we walk in newness of life. You see, standing in the water represents Jesus' death. 
Immersion into the water represents Jesus' burial. And raising the disciple out of the water represents Jesus' resurrection. Now in the New Testament, baptism always follows repentance and faith. Matthew 3, 6 reveals that people came to John the baptizer and they were being baptized as they confessed their sin. And when the Pharisees approached John to be baptized, he replies in Matthew 3, 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You see, John refused to baptize those Pharisees because there was no genuine repentance, there was no genuine confession of sin in their life. You see, my friends, that Matthew 3 narrative establishes that baptism is conditioned upon proof of genuine repentance. On the day of Pentecost, the people asked Peter what they should do in response to the preaching of the gospel. Peter replies in Acts 2.38, Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, grammatically, the verse should be rendered, Repent for the forgiveness of sins and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. As such, the Acts 2 narrative establishes that baptism follows repentance. When Philip explained Isaiah 53 to the Ethiopian eunuch, Acts 8.36 reveals that they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Philip responds in Acts 8.37 saying, If you believe with all your heart, you may. The Ethiopian responds in Acts 8.37 saying, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Following his profession of faith, Philip took the Ethiopian and baptized him. As such, the Acts 8 narrative establishes that baptism follows faith. Acts chapter 10 and verse 43 records that after proclaiming the gospel, Peter said to Cornelius and the others that everyone who believes in Jesus Christ receives forgiveness of sins. The result of believing is forgiveness, implying that incumbent to saving faith is repentance of sin. Acts 10.44 records that the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening to the message. That verb listening, akuo, means hearing and acting upon information. In other words, Cornelius and the others listening to Peter's message heard and responded. Now how do they respond? They responded by repenting of their sin and believing the gospel. And in response to their repentance and belief, Peter replies in Acts 10, 47-48, Surely no one can refuse that water for these to be baptized to have received the Holy Spirit. And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And as such, the Acts 10 narrative establishes that baptism follows the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You see, friends, what is evident from examining the scriptures is that before being baptized, one must hear the gospel, repent of their sin, believe the gospel, and be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Now, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit occurs the moment someone repents of their sin and believes the gospel. But my friend, one cannot repent and believe without hearing or receiving the gospel. And furthermore, fruit or proof of genuine repentance must be evident in that person's life. Now, according to the Messianic Commission, those who are baptized are to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Semitic culture, the term name, onoma, expresses an individual's nature, character, or authority. Hence, when you are baptized in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it insinuates that in baptism, you are declaring your allegiance to the authority of the Godhead. As an aside, attaching three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to one name, underscores the triunity and the plurality of the Godhead. 
So goal one of the Messianic Commission, make disciples. Goal two of the Messianic Commission, baptize disciples. Goal three of the Messianic Commission, teach disciples. Jesus says that after making disciples, we are to go about teaching them. Now, while baptism is a one-time act, teaching is an ongoing act. Again, them refers to those who become disciples. The verb teaching, like baptizing, is an instrumental participle indicating how discipleship occurs. In other words, following conversion, disciples must be taught. Now, the word teaching, didasco, means to impart skill and knowledge. Teaching is conveying the content of Scripture so that people can form their lives to Christ. When all Scripture is taught, disciples are fully equipped for engaging in ministry. Paul explained to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16-17, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the person of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You say, why do disciples need to be taught the Scripture? Because the Scripture is profitable. Ophelia. That is, it is beneficial, it is advantageous, it is useful to the disciples. You see, the Scripture is useful to you as a disciple for two reasons. One, it makes you adequate or proficient in godliness. And two, it equips you or outfits you for service to God. Hence, disciples are made proficient. They're equipped for service through the teaching, the didache of the Scripture. The Scripture is also beneficial to disciples for three reasons. Number one, it provides reproof. It rebukes you of your wrong beliefs or behaviors. Two, it provides correction. It restores you to your proper position. And three, it provides training or instruction in godly conduct. Reproof, correction, instruction, or application of the Scriptures to your life. However, teaching has to precede them. Practice without a doctrinal foundation is nothing more than pharisaical legalism. Without doctrine and then reproof, correction, and instruction... My friend, you as a disciple will never be equipped to serve God. The purpose of teaching is so that the disciple will observe all that Christ commanded. Now that word observing is conforming one's life to something. In this case, all that Christ commanded. The verb commanded refers to all the Messiah's directions and instructions. Those instructions, those directions are codified in the various sermons of Jesus the Messiah, such as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 3 to 7, 28. The Sermon for Service, Matthew 10, 5 to 11, 1. The Sermon about the Kingdom, Matthew 13, 3 to 53. The Sermon on Kingdom Rank, Matthew 18, 1 to 19, 1. And the Sermon on End Times, Matthew 24, 1 to 26, 1. Note as well that it's necessary to teach all or everything that Christ commanded. Indeed, everything that Christ commanded takes a lifetime to learn. Thus, the teaching aspect of making disciples begins at the spiritual infancy of the believer and continues through the various levels into spiritual adulthood. According to Paul, in Ephesians 4.13, discipleship continues until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Finally, Matthew sets forth the promise in the Messianic Commission in Matthew 28, 20. The promise of the Messianic Commission, Matthew 28, 20. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now the promise begins with the term lo, idu. 
which means behold, just as in verse 2 and 9. It conveys the sense of pay attention because something important is being said. Indeed, this promise is important, especially in terms of the Messianic Commission. Friend, as you go forth making disciples, Jesus promises, I am with you always. This promise is a reminder of the angelic message to Joseph in Matthew one twenty three. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means what? God with us. It is reminiscent of Yahweh's promise to Moses and Joshua. In Exodus 3.2, Yahweh said to Moses, Certainly I will be with you. Yahweh said to Joshua in Joshua 1.5, Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. The promise invokes aspects of his deity. That Jesus is with us underscores that he is omnipresent. He is present everywhere with every believer. Also, Jesus promises to be with us always, which emphasizes his eternality. Just as Jesus was present with the believers in AD 29, he is present with believers today. This promise is necessary because Jesus is no longer physically present on earth. He gave this promise to those first disciples before ascending into heaven. And while not physically present, though, he is still with us through the Holy Spirit. His presence with believers through the Holy Spirit will continue even to the end of this age. That age, the current age, is the age of the Gentiles. And the age of the Gentiles will end when Jesus the Messiah returns at the end of the tribulation. When he returns, the present ministry of the Holy Spirit will no longer be necessary as Jesus will be physically present on earth. Folks, Matthew has used his gospel record to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. In birth, death, and resurrection, Jesus is the Messianic King. He is King and all disciples are citizens of his kingdom. And as the Messiah, his final word is a commission to us. And that commission is to continue making disciples. Now there's two sides to making disciples. Evangelism and exposition. Evangelism is outreach to the unsaved. If unbelievers are not being challenged to repent and believe the gospel, then believers and the church have disobeyed the Messianic Commission. If we are not engaging in evangelism, we have disobeyed the Messianic Commission. Exposition is inreach to the saved. If evangelism is outreach, exposition is inreach to the saved. If we are not teaching the whole counsel of God's word, then believer and the church, we have disobeyed the Messianic Commission. That's right, we have disobeyed the Messianic Commission if we are not expositing, teaching the whole counsel of God's word. Evangelism and exposition must be held in balance and the church's ministries should reflect that balance. Let's take a moment to step back and evaluate the ministries of the church. Are they evangelistic or are they expositional? And are there, is there a balance between the two? The Messianic Commission can be summarized in three truths. Truth number one. The Messiah has been given all authority in every realm. Truth two. Because Messiah has all authority, you and I are to make disciples of all people. And truth number three. As we make disciples, we have the promise that the Messiah will always be with us. Let's pray. Father, 
we come into your presence through Jesus the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords. We approach you in humility. We come in submission to your power and authority. And Father, we ask you to give us a heart for making disciples. Give us a desire to evangelize the unsaved and exposit your word to the saved. Father, forgive us for failing to obey this great commission. Forgive us for failing to make disciples as we go about our daily living. Forgive us for not making disciples of all peoples across all cultural and national boundaries. Father, as we seek to do your will, Lead us, guide us, direct us. And Father, as we go forth making disciples, may you be glorified as we proclaim your power and authority to all. And to this we say, Amen.